Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The ninth chapter of Luke is an interesting chapter because it probably is one of the best single chapters in the entire New Testament and consequently the entire Bible on the subject of discipleship. There's a division in that chapter. It seems like the, there's a division right about the 51st verse as the last part of that chapter is a set kind of like by itself. But there is a theme that runs through the entire chapter, that theme being discipleship, as I mentioned. I'm going to be focusing on the last few verses in that chapter, verses 57 through 62. And I'll read those for you in just a minute. But I'm also going to go back and just pick up some highlights from the rest of the chapter so you can see what this has to say, what Luke had to say about the subject of discipleship. So in that 57th verse, which is where I will begin reading, it says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now in the first 50 verses of this chapter, as we see what it says about discipleship, about the disciples, about their successes and their failures, we start off in this chapter with the commissioning of 12 apostles. Jesus gave them power over demons and diseases and sent them forth to do two things, preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. The guidelines for this particular ministry were as follows at this special time. He said, don't pack anything. Don't pack bread. Don't take any money. Don't take an extra walking staff is what it should have meant. That's what it implies. Uh, don't take your wallet. Uh, as opposed to today where they got the credit card, don't leave home without it. <laughs> don't take anything. Don't take any extra clothing. So he was setting them up for this ministry mission to go in faith. You don't even go knowing where your next meal will come from. 
You don't go having a change of clothes and your own provisions. It's not that Christ is opposed to any of us having provisions. But in this case, he's putting them to the test. He said, now I'm going to send you out, and you are going to learn how to live day by day by faith, trusting God for your very meals, for the clothes you wear, for where you will lodge. This is going to be a real school for you. He says if people invite you into, your, into their home, go into their home. He said if there's places where they do not receive you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that city as a testimony against them, which was a cultural practice. It was significant in their day. Now, it doesn't hold a lot of significance in these days. If you saw somebody out there stomping their feet and shaking the dust off, you wouldn't know what they were doing. However, there was one time when Ann and I left a town, and she said, stop the car. I stopped the car. She got out and stomped those little feet and got back in. She shook the dust off her feet of that little town. I knew what she was doing. I don't know if anybody else did or not. But it was a testimony against them. They did not receive what God had brought to them. And Jesus said, therefore, in this symbolic fashion, write them off. How many of you know what a come-as-you-are party is? It, now, I, I don't stay in tune to things, but isn't that from a long time ago, basically? Do, do they do that much anymore? Would the younger generation know that? Okay, I'm, I, okay I'm, I'm in, I know what I'm talking about then. <clears throat> and so, a, a word of explanation for those that may not know. The come-as-you-are party, it was mainly girls. I don't remember in my area in my life, the, the boys doing that much, but the girls would go around and, and knock on a door and catch the girl, uh, whether she was just waking up or getting ready to go to bed or whatever, and whatever state she answers the door in, she, that's the way you go, and you go to the party. The girls thought it was great fun, but they're funny anyway. <laughs> so Jesus is going, and he's saying, come as you are right now. Don't go home and, and do anything. Don't, don't make any preparations. Let's go. Let's go right now. And so they stepped out in faith following Jesus. Now, we move rapidly in this ninth chapter from Jesus gathering up his followers and saying, Come now. Make no preparations. Come and follow me. To next, he takes his 12 apostles and he feeds the 5,000 and uses them to distribute the miraculous multiplication of bread and fish. They get to see Christ in action here. And then, immediately after that, there is the story of him asking them, now that he's called them, now that he's commissioned them, now that he's empowered them, now that they've seen his, his miracles, he says, who do you think I am? Basically, he says, who do men say that I am? And then they said, well, here's, here's the rumors going around. And, but he said, who do you think I am? Because he had to know what they thought of him. Had they made up their mind yet who they're following? And, of course, in Matthew's account, 
Peter gives the famous response, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we would assume that he was speaking for the twelve because the twelve were knit together throughout this. They had decided Jesus Christ was God. And then Jesus shocks them next as he immediately tells them after they confess, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says that he's going to die this horrible death. And he gives them very challenging and sobering words concerning their decision to follow him. He says, first of all, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. He says, secondly, whosoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. He says, number three, whoever, is, whoever gains the whole world will lose their own soul. And they make the world's worst deal. And number four, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, he, Christ, will likewise be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. Now, four things they've got to think about being followers of him. The next thing he does with his disciples in this chapter is he takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to the mountaintop, and they experience the transfiguration there on the mountaintop where he appears with Moses and Elijah. And the group of disciples he left at the base of the mountain, meanwhile, encounter a demon-possessed child. And while Jesus and his inner circle are on top of the mountain experiencing this transfiguration, the disciples are down there finding themselves powerless to be able to deliver this demon-possessed child, which is significant considering we just started at the beginning of this chapter seeing that Jesus said, I want you to go out and I want you to preach the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, and I want you to heal the sick. And he empowered them to go do that. And the minute he's out of their sight, they can't do anything. So he comes back down his mountain with, with his inner circle, and he sees this commotion going on, and a demon-possessed boy, and they, they make a beeline to Jesus, and they said, your disciples are worthless. And Jesus responds to that, and he says, uh, Faithless and perverse generation, how long must I be with you and bear with you? And he didn't only speak that to his disciples. When he said that, you have to believe that Jesus was frustrated by more than just the failure of his own disciples. He was frustrated with the stubborn Pharisees who were persistently denying Christ's divine power. Every place he went, they were criticizing what he did. He was frustrated with these people who even came to Jesus and in a sense expressed doubt that he could even do anything about it. And then he was frustrated with his own followers because he had empowered them and commanded them to do something that they did not successfully do. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long do I have to put up with this? Next, we find the apostles quibbling among themselves about which of them would be considered the most important in the kingdom. And Jesus brings a child in their midst and uses this child as an example to rebuke them for their self-importance and to teach them what it means to have childlike humility, which is a lesson we all could refresh ourselves in from time to time, wouldn't you think? 
So he breaks up this power grab. And next the disciples come proudly to Jesus and they inform him, Master, we just saw somebody casting out demons in your name and we told them, don't do that. You're not a part of our inner circle. Don't you find this interesting that they had failed? But when they found somebody who was doing it, they said, you shouldn't do that because you haven't been chosen. Now, how many would rather have somebody that can get the job done than somebody that has a title? So here they come in this arrogance, thinking Christ is going to be so proud of them for protecting the inner circle. Master, we saw somebody casting out demons, but don't worry about it. We told them to quit. And the final embarrassing episode involving the disciples came after the 51st verse where Jesus sent some of his disciples into the Samaritan village and says, prepare them for my coming. And the people did not welcome him. And this angered some of his disciples because they went to make preparations and the people did not want to receive Christ. So the disciples came to Jesus and said, well, why don't you just call down fire and eat them all up? Let's be done with these rebellious people. And Jesus rebuked them for their judgmental spirit. Now, can you see as we move in rapid succession through this chapter how it speaks to the limited success and the many failures of the disciples following Jesus and the inner circle called the apostles. And then we hit this section where Luke records the three counts of these three different individuals who now come and decide they would like to be disciples. And I want to analyze these three. And you'll, we'll compare and contrast. And the first one represents what I would suggest to you would be an impetuous person. I've seen a lot of impetuous people in my ministry. I've had people come to me and they are just so excited about their Christianity, about Jesus, about ministry, about whatever. They just wanted to do something, but the thing they were wanting to do was not the right thing. Having to deal with people who are impetuous whose ambition gets out ahead of their wisdom. That happens a lot of times in Christianity. It really does. I mean, I could, I, I could relate many stories to you, such as this one, where uh, a lady in one small community where I pastored came in, and she said, I really feel like I want to take some tracks and go out and stand on the street corner and hand these tracks out. I want to know if the church would, would bless me for doing this. And I said... Basically, we had a nice conversation, but just in summary, uh, not only was I not going to bless her, I was not going to condone it, and if I had anything to do with it, I was not going to allow it. And the reason being, because this woman's lifestyle was so atrocious that she was not going to have any fruit standing out there trying to jam tracks in somebody's face when everybody in town knew what she was like. And furthermore, I didn't want that associated with my church or the kingdom of God in any way, shape, or form if I could help it. Now, 
How many of you know you are not the most popular person on the earth when you as the pastor have to tell somebody no? You immediately become public enemy number one. But there's this impetuousness that people just want to do these things without thinking about what they're doing. Now, the unique thing about this man is he volunteers to follow Christ. He comes to Christ, and he has these unrealistic expectations of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, evidently. Because the response Jesus gives is a wake-up call. When he comes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you, Jesus gives an interesting response that tells us Jesus wanted him to know this very clearly. Foxes have dens, birds have nests. I don't even have a bed to call my own. Now, running through all three of these encounters Jesus had with these potential disciples, you have to understand there's one thing that is common to each of these scenarios. And that is that Jesus knew what they were thinking and knew what their potential was and knew things that were in their heart that are not revealed to us as we read the story. But we can see very clearly Jesus knew something about this man coming to him very impetuously saying, I want to follow you, that he must have seen that this man was coming with unrealistic expectations about what it means to follow me. So the first thing he tells me is, you don't know what you're getting into. This is not the fame and the fortune. This is not the, the uh, romantic and ecstatic experience that you think you're going to experience. This is tough. This is difficult. And using even the creatures of the earth who have some place to call home. He says, I have abandoned home. Now think about that. He was 30 years old, in his early 30s, and he was no longer living at mom and dad's house. Now that's huge today. He got out, but he didn't have his own house because in his ministry, he was not interested in putting down roots for the flesh. So this man ministered without a home his entire time he ministered. Didn't have a regular place he could go and rest. So if somebody didn't invite him in, he slept outdoors. And Jesus just wanted this young man to know, do you realize what you're asking to do? You're going to follow me. And I can't invite you into my home. I don't have one. I can't provide you a knapsack. I don't have one. We're going to be out in the weather. We're going to be exposed to the dangers. People are after me all the time. Are you sure you want to follow me? His response was very revealing about this man's unrealistic expectations. Now I wonder sometimes if people have unrealistic expectations about Christianity, about following Christ today. What is it you thought you were getting into when you put your name on the line? What is it you thought it would be like when you said, I will take Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I've seen a lot of people knocked off course. That they started following Jesus, but they never finished following Jesus. They started with unrealistic expectations. As a pastor, I cannot tell you how many times I have seen people say something similar to this. I just did not know it was going to be like this. I thought God would do this. 
I thought it would be better than this. I thought God was a loving God. I thought, and they had all these expectations. What did you think you were signing up for? Not once when Jesus was recruiting disciples did he ever tell them how fun and exciting this is going to be. He repeatedly told them how difficult it's going to be to follow him. Why do we in 21st century Christianity think it should be any different for following Jesus? Now, we've been living in a, in a bubble for a while. We've been in a nation that historically has been very sympathetic to Christianity. We've been in a nation that we've been able to worship without being hindered. And all of a sudden, we're seeing things begin to cramp our worship, our Christianity. We're seeing brothers and sisters, as I've mentioned many times in my sermons recently, because it's so much on my heart, being murdered because of their faith. We're seeing the oppression of Christians in the United States of America. And it's a little bit scary to go from having the favor of the majority of the people to suddenly having the tables turned against you. But what did you expect when you signed up? Are you prepared for following Jesus no matter how difficult it may become to do that? That's really the question. This overly eager man evidently just didn't realize what he was volunteering for. And when people discover that the word disciple and discipline have something in common, it's just a variation of the same theme. A disciple and one who disciplines himself. That means that as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, I must make choices I would not feel compelled to make if I was not a follower of Jesus Christ. Because I say I am a Christian, I am associated with Christ, there are things I'm going to choose not to do that the world will never understand why I have a problem with that. There are going to be things I choose not to do that some Christians will never understand why I have a problem with that. Because disciple and discipline go together. And just wonder what you have done in your life to show those Lines of discipline that you have established because you feel if you do this, you are more effective in loving God and serving Him than if you did not. I'll tell you one thing, as a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ, you're just not free to do everything everybody else is doing. You simply are not. Being a follower of Jesus Christ demands that you make certain choices that says, I cannot, I will not, I must not. I must live a little bit higher than that. It's what disciples and discipline is all about. Perhaps people like this volunteer, they're thinking about all the benefits and the blessings of following Jesus. And it seems pretty clear this man did not consider the hardships that he was about to step into. The second man comes to him, and I think he represents the procrastinator. He comes with many misplaced priorities. He comes with a set of conflicting duties in his life. Oh, that's a big one in Christianity. That runs deep in the Christian world. Conflicting duties. And unless you get a clear focus in your mind of the order of priorities in your life, 
you will probably drop the ball at some point when these conflicting duties come into your life. Let me see now. I'm obligated as a part of this world and as a part of the place that I work and all the clubs I belong to that they want me to be here and they want me to do that and I've got the kids and I've got it. And you know, it, when you have to make these choices, if you don't have clear priorities, you will end up eclipsing God many times because you think you have a moral obligation to be there for somebody else doing something else. I'll tell you, I had a family in one of my churches. It's been many years ago. And they were so involved in their kids' sports life. As a matter of fact, I've had multiple families in multiple churches that fit this scenario. But one family I'm thinking of in particular. And they came to me, and the, and the, the, the father played uh, ball, and the mother played ball, and the daughters played ball, and they, all, they were all very, very good. But the lady came to me, and she said, Pastor, when it is ball season, we will not be in church because we believe in teaching our kids what it means to be faithful and committed. I'm still struggling with understanding that. You know, when you put your name on the line for something and suddenly you have conflicting duties and you essentially end up putting God number two and something else number one, I'm telling you, you've got a problem. You may not love me for saying that, but I have to stand before God, not you. God has got to be number one. If you want to do anything else, fit it in somewhere other than where God deserves the number one priority. You've got spare time. You do whatever you want morally uh, uh, that is not objectionable in your spare time. But don't displace God. God's a jealous God. The procrastinator. So this man, not like the first man. The first man comes to Jesus and he says, where do I sign up? Looks good to me. Looks fun. The second man, Jesus sought him out. Did you ever notice that? Jesus sought him out. Come, follow me. And the man hesitates. He sets his own conditions. He said, well, I I can probably do that. He said, now, here's the deal. I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And people struggle with this passage. It's, It's one of those difficult, sticky passages that unless we really spend some time mining this out, we probably just stumble over it and have all kinds of questions about it. Uh, why, would, why would Christ mind somebody going to their father's funeral? We have all these questions. But there's an answer to this. And if you'll stick with me for just a moment, I think I'm going to uh, illuminate this for you. The fact of the matter is that the Jews were required to bury people within 24 hours. Now, Christ would not have objected to 24 hours. Uh, You just got to believe that that's not a big deal. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, this man's father wasn't dead yet. Now, down in in Georgia, when I was evangelizing, the pastor down there told me the story, and it was a true story that uh, this woman had called the funeral home and told them to come pick her husband up. And when they arrived, they came into the house and they said, where is he? She said, he's on the back porch. They went back there and he's sitting up in his rocker rocking. <laughs> they came back and said, 
he's not dead. She said, well, have a seat. He'll be ready in a minute. <laughs> he must have been pretty close. I don't know. But this man says, well, first let me bury my father. His father wasn't dead yet. So what he was really saying is, I can't leave as long as my father is home in my care. Now, that's what he's saying. He's not saying there's any funeral plans. He's not saying I'll get this done in 24 hours. He's just saying, I'm not really ready to leave my father. When he dies, I can join up. And that's the reason Jesus said, let those who are dead, already dead, spiritually dead, is the way you ought to understand this. Let the spiritually dead take care of things that only they can take care of. Because there's a lot of things spiritually dead people can do. Have you ever discovered that? But there's a lot of things spiritual th- spiritually dead people just simply can't do. That's what Christ is calling this man to do. That's what God is calling you to do. Do you consider yourself spiritually alive. If you do, wave your hand at me. That's kind of what I thought. (laughs) If you consider yourself spiritually alive, there are things only a spiritually alive person can do. And if you say, I can't do that because, just ask yourself, can a non-Christian do these things? Can somebody else do this? Or can they take my place following Christ for this special task he's assigning to me? Because to take the gospel, to follow Christ, to be anointed by him, to be appointed by him, the world can't do that. They're not equipped for it. It takes somebody special to do that. And Jesus is calling you to something special. And don't eclipse that calling by all these excuses that I'm not ready yet, I've got other things to do, when Jesus is again seeing things in this man's life that is not readily apparent by the reading of the story, but he knows. He knows that this man is just hesitating. He knows he's got mixed up priorities. And talking about mixed up priorities, how many of you know somebody that... I mean, I'm not sure everybody does, but how many of you know somebody that they plan on getting to heaven someday, but they're not ready yet? How many of you know that? You've talked to them. And so I, I'm, I believe in God. I'm sympathetic to this. I want to go to heaven. I'm just not ready today. You've met those people. They got messed up priorities. When you don't know when your life is over, when you don't have another hour guaranteed, When you may not make it out of this service today. Uh, Not that I'm going to have anything to do with that. (laughs) You may not make it to next Sunday. Why are you thinking that because of your age you've got so many years left? Who guaranteed you anything? The roads are dangerous going back home. The diseases are abounding. We don't know. Doesn't it make sense to be prepared today if anybody says, I would like to go to heaven, I really do plan on making it there, then let's take care of it right now. What is the hesitation in saying, not yet, I want to take care of something else? That's a fool's gamble. All we have to do is take care of business today and make preparation. Because Jesus spoke to the rich man and he said, you fool, this night your soul is going to be required of you. And he was taking care of all kinds of business that had nothing to do with eternity. 
But Jesus said, you don't know. This is the night. Of course we have to take care of business when it's time. Procrastination. Putting things off. It's no good. When Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. It means we have to be aware that God gives a special calling to us. That if we truly consider ourselves alive in him, let's take that calling and that appointment seriously. Now the third person to encounter Jesus is like the first man. He comes and he volunteers. The man in the middle is the only one that Jesus approached. But he volunteers. And he said, you know, it looks good to me. I'd kind of like to try this. And he says, the only thing I request is that I be allowed to go home and say goodbye to my loved ones. And Jesus responded to this by saying, no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom. Now think about that for a minute. Unfit for the kingdom. The response to his scenario, his suggestion, let me just go home. And say goodbye to loved ones. Do you notice Jesus didn't say he couldn't go home and say goodbye? Sometimes I think we read into that that Jesus said, no. Don't go home. Don't say goodbye. Just follow me. They'll have to wonder why you didn't come home. He didn't say. He said, the warning is, if you put your hand to the plow and you turn back, you are unfit for the kingdom. In other words, when we see that Jesus saw in their life, in their heart, things that we do not see. He saw in this man's life that when he went back home and he announced to his family, guess what, I've just signed up to follow this itinerant evangelist around and be a part of his team. Now, if you did that, what would you encounter? Is your family going to throw you a party and send you off? Or are they going to going to commit you? Are they going to try and talk you out of it? Because they're concerned about you. What do you think you're doing? You can't do this. You don't know this man. You're leaving your responsibilities. And what Jesus was saying is you're putting yourself in a position where somebody's going to try and talk you out of doing what you have committed yourself to do. If, if you want to join up with me and I say yes, don't put your hand to the plow and let anybody else talk you out of it. We've got a lot of people here today. You've made a profession of Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. I'm, I'm curious. I take a lot of votes because it keeps you awake. How many of you, somebody tried to talk you out of your walk when you first started? Yeah. Did you, family? Friends? They're telling, what are you doing? They want to deter you. And that's what Jesus saw in the pathway for this man. Okay, you're volunteering to follow me. You're going to go home to family and friends. But if you don't follow through with your commitment, you're unfit for the kingdom. Now that one, that one upsets me. That's the one I struggle with. Not because I don't think it's right. It's because it makes me look inward about being fit for the kingdom. I can't be holy enough. 
I can't be righteous enough, but it has something to do with following through with your commitments to God. Making you fit for the kingdom. What have you promised God that you didn't do? Does it make you wonder if you're fit for the kingdom? Are you doing what you said you were going to do? Are you following through with these things? And this analogy of of the plow. As Jesus chooses to compare ministering for him in the kingdom like plowing a field. Because the plow man, the plow person, has to be focused on what they're doing and their job. You can't be distracted. And you can't plow a straight furrow if you're looking back to see where you've been. You've got to keep your eye on where you're going. And of course, in those days, they didn't necessarily have the nice, neat rows. Ours is a very sophisticated system of farming. They just plowed around rocks and things. But if you're not looking where you're going, even in those days, you're going to wreck the plow. It's not going to be a successful task because you're not focusing. You've got to keep your eye on the team ahead. You've got to keep your eye on where you're going. There's one of the things about this is not only focusing on what you're doing, but it's also not thinking about where you've been. And when we spend so much time thinking about the past, more time dreaming about the past, and, and I'll be honest with you, in eight years here at Westside, there's been a few people hung up on what used to be. I, I don't think that you all are, but I've heard plenty of it in eight years. You can't focus on the past and be effective today and tomorrow. I'm happy for the good things, sad for the bad things. There's people that are, are, are so hung up on what used to be and how great it was and it's no longer like that. And there's people that are so hung up on the failures of the past that they can't get over it. And Paul said this, I do one thing. I forget those things which are behind And I press forward for the mark. Toward that mark for the prize of the high calling in Jesus Christ. It's all you can do. What's done is done. What's over is over. The past is past. But Jesus said, put your hand to the plow and quit looking behind you. And start thinking about today. Now God is the God of yesterday and today forever. We understand that part. But he's not the God that that is interested in you trying to recall something that's already done and over and gone. He's interested in what you can do today. And when you're talking about your past, I'm talking about even your own past. Where the devil keeps bringing up things in your own past to keep you defeated. And you can't get over it because you've done something. I'm telling you, God's not holding it against you. And if God, the ruler of the universe, is not holding it against you, who are you to hold it against you? And don't let the devil hold it against you. It's gone. It's over. It's done. I don't care what you've done. If you put it under the blood of Jesus Christ, it's done. It's over. It's finished. It's through. You've got a new life today. You've got to take care of. And you've got a future. Forget the past. As long as we keep looking back, we'll just make a mess out of the task we have. 
I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. No turning back. No longing for the past. No forsaking the plow once you've put your hand to the task. There's just no way to go but forward. That's the only option Christ has given you. Keep plowing. Keep pressing forward. No turning back. End of discussion. Bow your heads.